Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is Phoebe Kotlikoff, and this week I am so pleased to be sitting down with former Army Arabic linguist Kayla Williams. After leaving active duty, Ms. Williams spent eight years at the Rand Corporation researching service member and veteran health needs and benefits, international security, and intelligence policy. She then served as the director of the Center for Women Veterans at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Ms. Williams is the author of two books, Love My Rifle More Than You, Young and Female in the U.S. Army, and Plenty of Time When We Get Home, Love and Recovery in the Aftermath of War. She is a senior fellow and director of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. Kayla, it's great to be with you. It's such a pleasure to join you this morning. Okay, kicking things off right away. First question, what are you reading? I am currently reading a book called Fall by Neil Stevenson. He is one of my favorite authors, and I'm finding this one really fascinating. It delves into a lot of topics that seem more timely and relevant than I would have expected, including... um, what happens when folks can no longer trust the internet and how society can kind of fragment when you have people with different levels of acceptance of a fact-based reality and also delves into the possibility of uploading consciousness after death. And it's a super fun, fascinating read and I don't usually get a chance to read for pleasure. So delving into it has been really awesome. Wow. I'm assuming completely fictional. Yes. It's not not uh, a commentary on current events because it sounds extremely current. I mean, and- it feels really current. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's a fiction author. I've loved everything I've ever read by him. Cryptonomicon was the first book I read by him, and it's absolutely amazing. And his his commentary on kind of the human condition is always really incisive and interesting and his mind works in amazing ways. You think, you know, what direction a plot is going and then it zooms off in a totally different direction. I'm so glad that uh, whether it's quarantine or just being more deliberate with your time that you're making time to read for pleasure right now. But I want to ask you something I've been thinking about a lot lately is whether reading fiction is something that we consider only for pleasure. Do you think about fiction as being kind of fitting into that box rather than as a means toward professional development? So I was a lit major in undergrad, and I think of reading fiction as being fundamentally important to my existence. (laughs) I don't mean to overstate it, but when I was in graduate school, going to school full-time and working full-time, I didn't read fiction at all for two years because my reading list of, of, of academic reading was so extensive and coming back to it was such a deep pleasure, but I think I get so much out of it. Fiction authors can allow us to connect with other human conditions in a way that we might not otherwise be able to. It, they offer us a window into how other people think. They allow us to imagine situations that we haven't been in, in deeply important ways. And I'm kind of a nerd, but I really like science fiction and fantasy, partly because good science fiction writers 
can push us to consider questions about our own humanity and what makes us human in really interesting ways that can, I think, if you think about the questions they're raising deeply enough, allow us to be the kind of people we want to be. I couldn't agree more. I've been having a similar conversation in my own household, thinking about what it means to be a leader, particularly in times of uncertainty. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that you are a lit major. My next question has to do with kind of some of your history and how you became a reader. I know you had a little bit of a winding path into military service that started with a lit degree before enlistment. Would you talk about um, your path to becoming a reader and also your path to becoming a lit major? I can't remember when I didn't read. I started reading very young. My entire family, are, they're all big readers. There were stacks of books on each step in the stairway in my childhood Amazing. home. I mean, there were just books everywhere all the time. I always read. My childhood was, I lived in a family of fairly modest means. I was going to the library a lot. And I think for me, reading was also a huge escape. Uh, it was what I did just to, I don't know, to get to get out of the world that I was in, which wasn't always great. And I'm old enough and we were poor enough that we did not have a great TV and we did not have cable. So it was books and not TV that I escaped to. Um, so I, and I just never left it. Um, my dad was, has a PhD in English literature. So I suppose in a way, my undergrad degree was following in his footsteps, but I also really, loved the opportunity that reading gave me to explore worlds outside my own. So my, it's kind of funny now looking back at it, but my undergrad degree in literature, I specifically focused on literature by not dead straight white guys from Europe and North America, because I wanted to learn more about the world that was outside what I'd been assigned all the way through mm -hmm. middle school and, and high school. And I really loved getting to read literature from members of the African diaspora and get a deeper understanding of an experience that was not like my own. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really important to try to understand viewpoints um, shaped by experiences fundamentally unlike my own in some ways, mm -hmm. and also get a deeper understanding of our shared common humanity. So uh, yeah, I, I, looking back, I'm like, I actually was kind of doing intersectionality before I knew the word for that. <laughs> I, <laughs> like my, my declared minor was, I'm not joking, studies in gender, ethnicity, and class issues. And I'm like, okay, that was nice. a really long time ago. I am such a nerd. <laughs> and not to put you on the spot, but mm -hmm. when you think back to your early development, your time in college, uh, are there any particular works that stick out to you as formative to who you are and who you've become? That's a great question. Um, some in, in, prob in different ways. So uh, when I was in high school, I read, I was reading a lot of science fiction and works by Robert Heinlein and Frank Herbert were really important to me and influenced how I thought. And in some ways I had to like relearn some lessons because not all of them were necessarily 
great, but they were very formative. And then in college, um, I think Toni Morrison is an author that definitely uh, influenced my thinking a lot, especially a, about what amazing writing is. She's just a phenomenal mm -hmm. writer. And uh, I can see my bookcase as we chat. And so I, I can look at some of the books that I have kept, which is interesting. And one that is very quirky and random, but that ended up resonating with me in the long term is called Fire from the Mountain. And it's a memoir by a Sandinista and his writing about what it was like to be an insurgent ended up sticking with me way later when I was in Iraq and made, I think helped me understand the experience of who we were thinking of as the enemy. And that I think can be very important. Which leads me to the book that you wrote, which is in a lot of ways, um, a first person narrative of a pretty historical time in our country. Would you talk a little bit about when you knew that you wanted to write your own story? I always wrote, I have some notebooks with the worst poetry you've ever seen from <laughs> all the way back in junior high. And when I was deployed, I was part of the initial invasion. So I was in Iraq from 2003 to 2004, and we did not have regular internet access for most of my deployment. So I was still writing paper letters home and I was writing keeping paper journals. And one of the people that I wrote letters home to was one of my professors from undergrad. And when I got back, he said, have you ever thought about writing a book about your life? Because nobody's heard this story. People have been reading about what it's like to be a man who goes off to war, um, going back to, well, even pre-reading, right? Like going back mm -hmm. to the um, oral traditions, like the Odyssey and the Iliad. But the story of women going to war is not one that people have had the opportunity to read about yet. And that was, it was that moment. And he and I collaborated on the first book. I was still active duty. I did not have access to an agent or a publisher or anything like that. So we worked on it together. And then my second book I wrote on my own, and it's a really different experience. It's very challenging to write with another human being, especially someone who uh, has, does not have shared common experiences with you. I've talked to the person who collaborated with Shoshana Johnson on her book, and I think the fact that they were both uh, women veterans was really helpful. They had some common ground and common language. I was having to explain like basics of military service to a college professor who had never served was different. In some ways, maybe good. It forced me to articulate concepts that uh, he had no understanding of. But in other ways, it was it was very challenging. And in some ways, I'm sure changes your audience a little bit. I mean, it, I assume that for your first book having written it with a college professor made it perhaps more accessible to people who didn't have a shared experience with you. Is that inaccurate? I don't know. I, I, I honestly have no idea. I, I know that his connections are what uh, landed me in a room with a major publishing house in New York and got it published. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that mm -hmm. was really important, but I don't know the extent to which it affected the, the writing or the accessibility to a broader audience. Um, I mm -hmm. feel like I've gotten a lot of feedback from other military women about my first book. When I went on my first book tour, I had women who served in the first Gulf War come up to me crying saying, I thought I was crazy. I was doubting my own experiences. And then I read your book and I can, I've never been able to talk about going to war, but I gave your book to my mom so that she could understand what I went through. And I also got letters from infantrymen saying similar things without the gendered component, but saying like, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about going to Iraq, but I can give your book to my parents and they can understand a little bit about what I went through. And so that has been really meaningful to me to feel like I, was able to accurately capture some of the core components of deploying and um, help folks who have a harder time articulating their experiences feel like there's a voice to what they went through. Right, that they can communicate through your work with people that they love, who they want to help understand this big portion of their life. Yeah. And can I ask, as a young aspiring writer myself. I ask every guest on this podcast. So your book, quite an indictment of a lot of behaviors and things that were happening during the initial invasion. And I would love to know how, where you were in your mind when it was time to publish. Did you feel hesitation? Were you concerned? <laughs> I didn't know that you were still active duty when you published uh, it came out like three months after I left active duty, but publishing process takes a long time. So it was written while I was active duty. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you look at, if you read the book now, I, it's very obvious where my head was. I was just still so emotionally caught up in what was going on. I had a lot of anger mm -hmm. and I did not have a lot of perspective. I would highly recommend that you read Formation by Ryan Dosti. She and I have had a lot of similar experiences in some ways. We were at the Defense Language Institute at the same time. We were in Baghdad briefly at the same time. I don't remember ever meeting her. She waited more than a decade before writing her book. She went to therapy before writing her book. And <laughs> the amount of perspective that she has, the amount of emotional processing that she had done before she wrote, to me, comes through really clearly. Mm -hmm. um, my book, my first book is me just vomiting a bunch of my experiences out onto the page. And uh, I didn't, there's so much that I didn't understand because of where I was. I'm not, I don't regret it. Mm -hmm. It's an accurate reflection of who I was and where I was at the time and the experiences that I went through as a junior enlisted soldier. But I, I didn't, I didn't grasp where I was in at all in like the sweep of history. And I didn't understand the motivations very well of other people that I served with. Um, when I, when I got back, I read a book by Anthony Shadid, uh, a journalist who, who later died uh, tragically, but he wrote about the experience of being in Baghdad, waiting for the invasion to start and being irritated with a journalist he was sharing a hotel room with um, for smoking, not the act of smoking, but the way his breath sounded. And Tony Shadid was mature enough to say like, oh, actually this had nothing to do with the sound of his breathing. It had everything to do with the anxiety that we might mm -hmm. die. And when I read that and it clicked in with me, oh, that was happening with us too. Like stuck mm -hmm. in a truck with three other soldiers and we wanted to murder each other half the time, even though we would have 
died for each other at the same mm -hmm. time. I, I was not conscious in my youth and immaturity of the extent to which the stress and anxiety was affecting all of our emotions. I was mm -hmm. just experiencing the emotions, if mm -hmm. that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. And I think does not remove um, the importance of that narrative in my mind at all. Right, it's very accurate narrative, uh, but it's, it's, it's me, it's a younger me. If I, sometimes I read comments, don't never read the comments, but, um, <laughs> and um, people are like, oh, well, she sounds this and this and this. And I'm like, well, yeah. And guess what? I'm not anymore. Right. Like it's it's right. been quite a few years and um, it's been 15 years and I've, I've grown up, I've matured a lot and I understand things in a different way. And I look back on the folks I served with and now that I'm a mom and I have, have kids, um, I'm like, they, they're just so young. Mm -hmm. The people we send to war, by and large, are so just shockingly, tragically young. Mm -hmm. and that's really hard in some ways to sit with. Yes. And what a segue to something else that I wonder about you in the trajectory of your life. So you were active duty for five years, and then you pivoted to a sort of more broad role outside of active duty, but still very much in national security and especially in veterans policy. Can you talk about how you made that transition and how you grew up in defense? So I enlisted with an undergraduate degree, which is a little unusual. And while I was in Iraq, I was, <laughs> I was implementing other people's decisions and I thought some of them were terrible. And I, it just really crystallized in me that I wanted to try to make a difference in our foreign policy without carrying a gun and at a, at a level that I would never achieve on the enlisted side mm -hmm. of the house. Mm -hmm. And I also had enlisted partly to access the GI Bill. And so I was sticking with my plan. I got out and I wanted to use my GI Bill, but my choice of majors was definitely influenced by my military experiences. I chose to major in international relations and I initially thought that I was going to want to go and work at the State Department. It became clear partway through my degree that because of the extent of my husband's combat injuries, we were likely not well suited to be a, a family that followed that path. So mm -hmm. I ended up working at RAND, which is a think tank, and um, trying to still serve and make a difference, but from a different angle, from a different direction, um, trying to think through policies, trying to provide um, independent outside insight that was shaped and influenced by my own experiences, but then grounded in uh, data and in research and in a different way of approaching, uh, approaching problems. Mm -hmm transitioning from RAND to the VA and now to the Center for a New American Security, how have you kept up your passion to serve this community and uh, drive policy forward? I can't imagine a different way. <laughs> that sounded really halting and weird. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, sometimes when I walk into 
certain buildings like downtown DC. Well, in the past, I'm not going anywhere anymore, but I, I go into say lawyer's offices and I look at how expensive everything is. And I'm like, I have made so many bad decisions. Like I have not choosing a, a path of, of, um, of public service and working in the nonprofit world because both RAND and CNAS are, are nonprofits. Uh, like this is not how one gets rich. You, you you don't end up with your with a private jet if you are like, serving in the military or working at a think tank. Okay. Um, but it's it's where I feel it's important to me to have a life of purpose and meaning. And I got that very much with military service. And it's something that I've wanted to continue since I left the military. I can't I, I joke sometimes about having made bad life decisions um, because I'm never going to be like wealthy, but I don't actually mean that. Like, mm -hmm. To me, it's important to feel as if I'm making a positive difference in the world. Like, I basically my only goal is to try to leave things slightly better than I found them. Like that's that's it. That's if 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 you can put that on my tombstone, like I will feel like I've done enough. Mm -hmm a true public servant. And I think <laughs> probably a lot of people listening to this, uh, have struggled themselves with whether active duty for a career is the correct path for them, or an is there another way to continue service? And so it's great to see someone who transitioned out of active duty, continue to work in very important policy and continues to drive research and commentary that, uh, makes a difference in our foreign policy. I hope so. And I, I'm not working, you know, as much in foreign policy now. A lot of, more of it is on, say, like the, the human being side of things, mm -hmm. like military personnel and then veterans policy. But it, I know that some of the issues that I spoke out about um, as an outsider that I had the credibility to talk about because I could say, like, I've had boots on the ground. I served on active duty in the military, but I would not, if I were still in, have been able to make a difference in the same way. Like mm -hmm. for me getting to talk about women in combat and go on TV and write op-eds, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had stayed in and was in E6, E7 during that exact inflection point. Being able to talk about repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, being able to talk about um, transgender service members. These are issues that like, I'm very proud to have had a tiny, tiny role in pushing for policies that improve the diversity and inclusion of the force mm -hmm. in a way that I think is healthier for the military and for society writ large and for human beings that are able to serve to the best of their ability in whatever role they're qualified for mm -hmm. instead of being hindered by uh, by, by things that have nothing to do with getting the job done, although we haven't gotten there yet on the, on transgender service members. And then on, on the veteran side, same thing. Like It's really deeply important to me to get out there and try to improve the services and supports that are available to troops and family members and veterans uh, across uh, diverse backgrounds. It's something that... It, I suppose in some ways that's self-serving, right? Because my husband is a wounded warrior. I am myself a veteran. And so pushing for policies and programs that will help our family. But it's it's much broader than that. I think it's important for, for everyone. I think it's important 
for the future of the force that we are able to show potential recruits that we will care for them if, uh, if they are harmed uh, serving our nation, that we have adequate uh, resources available to, uh, to help them and their families if, if they suffer consequences from having gone to war. Yes, and I would argue that work is crucial to our foreign policy. I mean, you said it, I'm really just rephrasing it, but the personnel side makes the foreign policy executable in my mind. So if we don't have the former figured out, uh, the latter will suffer. Yeah, uh, we need to have, we at this point still need human beings to <laughs> go and execute our foreign policy. For now. Maybe someday we won't, but right now we are definitely uh, still in a human driven world. Exactly. Although my, my current reading list has a ton of sci-fi on it as well for reasons <laughs> to your point. Uh, okay. Last, last two questions. How do you fit reading into your life these days? So if you had asked me that a couple months ago, it would have been a totally different answer. Mm-hmm. And at that point it was uh, on my commute. So I have about a, when I can go to the office, I spend about 40 minutes each way on the train. And that's when I get most of my reading done. Since then it's become a lot more complicated, but last week was my kid's spring break. And so I did a lot of reading while they were on spring break, but it is, it's actually a lot harder during this to fit in reading while we're under this stay home order because I'm staying home with my kids who apparently want to be parented or need <laughs> need to be parented whether or not they want to be. Um, so I, I'm, I'm finding it a little more challenging to find the time to read in between like, doing my own job and trying to supervise some amount of learning. And it's it's been it's been hard. Um, But yeah, during my commute is the main time in a normal setting that I get reading in. And very last question before I turn it over to you. Do you have any particular projects you're working on that you're most excited about right now? Uh, Professionally or personally with writing? Either one. Either one. Um, Professionally, I'm really proud of the work that we put out recently on state level benefits for veterans, which no one has done before. We cataloged every single benefit offered by the different states and put them into a searchable database. We found 1,815 at the state level and they vary really substantially. So just for one small example, we live in Virginia because my husband is a 100% service-connected disabled veteran. If, As long as we are living here in Virginia, our children will get free tuition at state universities. Pennsylvania, which borders us to the north, if we lived there, our kids would get a $500 per semester grant. Like the difference between free tuition and fees and $500 a semester is massive. Dark. So for the long-term, you know, um, health of our family and for like the future of my kids, that state level benefit is really going to make a big difference. Uh, So putting that out there, I think is super exciting. Uh, You can find it if you Google CNAS state benefit finder. And I think it's really, really exciting work on, um, on the personal level. It's much harder for me to find time, not just to read, but especially to write. 
um, on personal projects when I do so much writing at the professional level, right? Like it's writing is a certain type of mental effort that I have a hard time doing mm. <laughs> both personally and professionally at the same time. Like it's really kind of one or the other, but I've been um, pondering some ideas and thinking about trying to pull together all of the shorter form writing that I've done over the past uh, decade or so into a collection to, to highlight some of the trends and like paths of thinking that I've been working through over over the past decade or decade and a half into something coherent. So stay tuned. I'll let you know if anything comes of that. I look forward to it. Kayla, this has been so wonderful. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we close out? One of the pre-read questions you sent was about long form versus kind of periodical writing. Yes. And I just want to say that I... I still subscribe to paper magazines. I do recycle them, I promise. But I love reading shorter form pieces. And some of my favorite publications are The Atlantic, Smithsonian Magazine, which has some fascinating military history that is super nerdy and amazing, and uh, Discover Magazine as well. And then, of course, I subscribe to several newspapers because I think that it's deeply important to the health of our democracy that we fund independent uh, journalism. Thank you for sharing. I will make sure to link to all of those periodicals <laughs> in the notes for the show, as well as to the CNAS State Benefit Finder. Thank you so much, Kayla. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week. Thank you.